One in seven people with a substance use disorder will not seek treatment because of their fear of what people will think of them. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today, I have Dr. Lynn Sadler, who is the uh, District Director of Health at Northern Kentucky Health Department. She sits on multiple boards, including the Northern Kentucky Heroin Impact Response Task Force. It's a mouthful. Yes. But welcome. Glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me. It's really my pleasure. Uh, so let's talk first about the organization as a whole. What what uh, I know there's a, you have a big staff and you cover a lot of residents, so... Just give us a little snippet about what the department does. Sure. The Northern Kentucky Health Department is the public health agency that covers Boone, Kenton, Campbell, and Grant counties. And uh, our sole mission is really to prevent diseases, promote wellness, and protect against health threats because we have this uh, amazing vision of wanting to make Northern Kentucky the healthiest region in the nation. So we have our work cut out for us. And you're right, we have about 140 employees uh, that work uh, in everything from health education to try to get people to eat right and be physically active and not smoke or vape, uh, to nurses working in our health centers providing WIC services and women's health and vaccines and all sorts of clinical type services. We have folks that um, work in the area of substance use harm reduction, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, uh, and environmental health folks that are out there inspecting restaurants and public pools and hotels and uh, all sorts of places. So we uh, have a very diverse workforce, uh, but we're all united by our mission. Well, let's just talk, uh, now that you talk about vaping, it's it's such a big deal now. And, you know, I see these, I was in a convenience store um, the other day and um, I saw these kids, they couldn't have been more than 14 and they were vaping right in the store and they were vaping marijuana. And, but you know, the, you can't, it has smoke, but you can't smell a thing. Correct. And it's just, it's scary. Not only cause I have kids, but, uh, just the ease of getting it, the ease of hiding it, the, you know, doing it in school. So, so what are you seeing with this big vaping craze. You you are so right. And uh, now with the vape-related lung illnesses that we're seeing and the deaths from it uh, and the investigation that's going on nationwide, uh, now more than ever, that message about not vaping, uh, it just becomes that much more important. Uh, and we have been uh, trying to push out that message for several years now. Uh, the problem is that that um, young people have been sold a bill of goods. Uh, they've been told things that just aren't true, like this is safe, this is water vapor, it's no big deal. Uh, and that's just not true. These are aerosols with all kinds of things in them. And as you said, um, it's not just 
uh, nicotine cartridges, which is bad enough in and of itself because that obviously gets them addicted. But there are THC or marijuana cartridges, and you can't smell them. And so, and the devices continually change so that it's easier for young people to hide what they're doing from parents and teachers and such. And, um, you know, really, uh, they're getting into situations that put their their health and their life at risk. It's very scary right now, which is why we encourage folks, if you are not vaping, don't start. And if you are, get help with quitting. And there's a number of terrific resources to help young people quit uh, if you go to our website, nkyhealth.org, yeah. including apps and we know how they love uh mobile apps for yeah. their phones so right you know they come in the shape of pens and they're just you know they look like usb uh, you yes. know it's, it's just yes it's crazy. i just so. saw one today uh out of california it now looks like uh the uh, string on your hoodie uh, and at the end of it is just the little um, place where you put the cartridge. Really? So, yeah. So, the uh, industry is continuing to do what it does to try to capture that market and get young people addicted. They're preying um, on that market. Absolutely. And we know the flavors that have been out there are flavors popular for kids, the advertising that has targeted kids. Uh, and, um, and we just have to fight back and protect our kids yeah and the whole thing is you know air quotes it's a safe alternative to cigarettes and we're finding that that's just inaccurate it's not and isn't it has not they have not been approved by the fda as a device to help you quit uh they have not met that that standard yeah so what interested you in public health wow you know when i was going through medical school many years ago I really thought long and hard about what what do I want to do? And I thought I wanted to be in family practice and go back to my little rural community where I grew up where access to care was a problem. And this was a small town in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. And as I was going through my rotations, I thought, you know, I just don't see being fulfilled and seeing patient after patient after patient. And I took a rotation in public health and just fell in love because the thought of being able to do things that can impact whole communities and whole populations and being able to work with other uh, agencies and people in the communities to make big change in communities and in people's health. Uh, I just fell in love. And so I have been in public health for over 25 years and in, in several different states uh, and have loved every challenging minute of it. That's got to be it. Obviously, just by the number of, what, 400,000 residents in, this, yes. in the four counties that you're- Yes, 24-7. Yeah, I can't imagine. So, yeah, we need people like you to uh, to be able to take on such a monumental task. So, um, thank you from all of us. Oh, <laughs> that very are kind Northern of Kentucky you. residents. So, the uh, to, to keep with the kind of temperature of this show- uh, We'll talk about all things public health, but concentrate on substance use. Uh, and Northern Kentucky has been labeled a hotbed for this problem. Uh, so this is a broad question, but how is public health affected by this this epidemic of substance use disorders? 
Gee, that's such a, a great question because it's really been an evolving story. Um, for us in public health in Northern Kentucky, we really um, were separated in a, a number of ways from um, mental health service provision and dealing with substance use treatment. Uh, we were involved with the prevention coalitions that each of the counties have and have uh, been funded uh, through some federal grants. Um, but back in about mm, 2012-ish, we started noticing our hepatitis C cases, uh, the numbers going up, and the main risk factor was people who were using drugs, people who were injecting drugs in particular. And so we were recognizing there's a, a problem um, and that we needed to address it. And, um, and that's really what we do. We're about preventing premature death and preventing the spread of disease. And we knew this was a disease that was spreading. And as we started comparing notes with other sectors of the community, law enforcement, treatment providers, healthcare system, uh, and advocates, um, we were finding out that we had an opioid problem. And so for us in public health, we had to quickly learn what does that mean? What's that all about? What's happening in our community? Um, it, from a public health perspective, we got started getting involved in what I call not just prevention, but in harm reduction, which really are um, implementing public health strategies and interventions to try to prevent premature death from overdoses and uh, to prevent the transmission or the spread of diseases like hepatitis C and HIV that unfortunately can occur fairly uh, readily through injection drug use and the sharing of needles and syringes. And so we had to learn a lot about um, people who use heroin, people who inject drugs, and really understand uh, where they were coming from um, in order for us to be able to move forward with uh, a naloxone or Narcan distribution uh, system, as well as advocating for and getting approval for syringe exchange programs. That's what I want to talk about. So I remember watching the, you know, some of the, um, not hearings, but public, you know, debates on this. And I know you were a big part of that, but what is the goal of a needle exchange? Well, the primary goal is really to stop the spread of diseases like hepatitis C and HIV by stopping the sharing of needles and syringes. And um, we have good evidence uh, and had good evidence just by the number of cases of hepatitis C. But even in 2017, when our HIV uh, cases started going up in the population of uh, folks who inject drugs, um, we had really good evidence that needles and syringes were being shared and therefore the the uh, germs that cause these diseases were being shared and that's what we were trying to stop. And the syringe exchange is a, an excellent public health intervention to, to stop that sharing. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other benefits to having those programs to the community. So it's a huge topic of debate, criticism, you know, the stigma plays a role in this. So I want to talk about some of the misconceptions about <clears throat> needle exchange and talk about first, I know Grant County was was first 
what, yes. 2016 or 17? Two, 2016, yes. But Campbell County and Kenton County really had a hard time. I don't know if deciding is the right word, but there was a big to-do about getting that done. What, what was that, like the, the main reasons for the struggle? Yes, and there's there's really so many. Um, Kenton County and the city of Covington actually approved the program in 2016, uh, but we could not operate because there were a number of requirements included in their resolution order. Uh, and the first one, which was a huge hurdle to overcome, was that we had to be operating the program in two other counties in our health district. We only had one. We had Grant County, uh, and we had been working on the others, Boone and, and Campbell, and trying to get something established there. Campbell County actually also passed uh, uh, a resolution approving the operation, and they left it up to us at the health department, um, who, frankly, are we are experts in how do you stop the spread of disease, how do you respond to outbreaks, and that sort of thing. We do it all the time, uh, and we're prepared to do it for a whole host of things like Ebola or measles or whatever, uh, and we've demonstrated that numerous times. And so Campbell County left it up to us. So our next stop was Newport. If we could get Newport on board, then we would have our two sites and we could start operating in, in Covington. Um, it took us until February of 2018 to get that approval from Newport. Uh, and as soon as that happened, we were able to operate. But both Newport and Covington, we have to operate out of uh, a mobile unit uh, on specific property. Um, St. Elizabeth uh, was gracious enough to agree uh, to allow us to have the mobile unit parked on their sites. Um, in Newport, it's the urgent care uh, up on the hill close to Fort Thomas, and uh, that's on Tuesday afternoons. And Thursday afternoons, we're in Covington at St. Elizabeth Covington in their parking lot. Talking about, again, the misconceptions about needle exchange, you, you have the camp that, and I don't use ignorance in a negative term or, or way. It's just pe people don't know about what this is all about. So they think this is a way of enabling drug use or giving people another avenue to continue drug use. What, what do you say to that? Well, you know, we do kind of the one-two punch. We give them the facts. We, we give them the data. We give them the research that has been done on these programs. These programs have been in place in different parts of the country for almost 30 years. So there's been a lot of research on the, the effects of these programs, particularly addressing some of the fears people have about these programs, you know, things like crime's going to go up in my neighborhood, there's going to be more needles in my neighborhood, you know, all of those fears that, that people have. Um, and to be able to show them what has happened in other communities and that those things don't happen. Uh, and then the second punch is to have um, actual people who are in recovery or people who um, 
know that they would benefit from programs and other advocates uh, who testify and uh, talk to the media, uh, as well as elected officials um, to explain why it's important to have this in in our community. Um, And we talk to them about what else these programs offer people, Uh, things like the Narcan overdose reversal kits that we have been able to save hundreds of people's lives by providing those kits. And training. Uh, Yes, and training that goes with it. Uh, Being able to talk to people about getting tested and offering testing for things like HIV or hepatitis C or during the uh, uh, hepatitis A outbreak last year that occurred um, in uh, predominantly in people who were using drugs to be able to vaccinate people as part of that program. to help stop the outbreak, uh, and also talking to them about treatment and their thoughts about treatment and uh, are they ready. Some people come ready, and that's really what they want is for us to try to help them with that. Um, But there are just so many other side benefits. We can help them uh, get connected to wound care so that they can avoid some more serious infections uh, associated with that uh, and get connected with health insurance and just a whole host of things that this population really needs. And that's what you don't hear about. You don't hear about all those ancillary things that are huge benefits. Now, are there requirements? I mean, do they have to see a, you know, like with, um, with Vivitrol and other medically assisted treatment Part of that package is you have to see a counselor a couple times a month. Are there any requirements to, in order to get access to the needle exchange that you have to do to, to be a part of the program? Well, there are um, a list of responsibilities, rules, regulations, things that are put in place to um, make sure that nothing jeopardizes the program. But really, it's um, we tell you we want you to bring your used needles and syringes in. And um, that first time that you come, bring them. And we will, from that point forward, we will give you sharps containers to keep them in. Um, And that way you're safe, people around you are safe, and we can properly dispose of them. Um, And really that's it. We just want you to bring in your your used needles and syringes. Um, And that's really it. Another big part of it I, I don't think people realize is the safety of the public, especially children. We have an office, a uh, family business in uh, northern Kentucky that's in sort of a an area where there's a high uh, drug transaction and selling and buying. And uh, I would walk the perimeter of the building Monday mornings and I would very often see a needle. Mm-hmm. And so you've, you're talking about, and I've heard like, you know, where leaves get collected in the drains, there's needles and kids getting poked, reaching for a ball. So, I mean, you've got that, that whole thing. And so, so to stop the collection of needles in the, in the uh, communities where people can take them and dispose of them is another part. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, being able to provide them with a mechanism to do that, 
Um, and, and we get tremendous response. Our exchange rates are very close to one-to-one. They're like 1.23 to one. Um, so, so that means that we give out 1.23 needles to every one they're bringing in. So it's just about one-to-one. And there are legitimate reasons why, uh, they may not bring everything in that we've given them. Some of the times they may have given some of their, uh, sterile needles and syringes to someone else so that that other person wouldn't doesn't share or that they don't have to share with them. Uh, some of the times they get confiscated by law enforcement when they get picked up for something, uh, and so they no longer have them to bring in. You know, there's a variety of reasons. Sometimes they don't go through as many as they thought they were going to, so they haven't used everything that they um, they that they thought they needed. Um, you know, so there's a variety of reasons why it's not exactly one-to-one um but that that is really good though i would put those numbers up against any any syringe exchange program in the country on the topic of law enforcement um there are a lot of examples and data and, and just sheer fact that we try and arrest our way out of this problem and it's such a i don't know percentages i don't like to use them if i don't have the data but a huge percentage of people incarcerated in this country are there for a drug-related offense or they committed a crime while intoxicated. And so in other parts of the world, and and I think there's probably some places doing it, but we need to rehabilitate rather than incarcerate. You know, I think anything that we can do to support people in seeking out um, healthier behaviors uh, is the way to go. Uh, and, and we're starting to see that. We're starting to see that that change. You know, we have uh, treatment programs available in uh, the Kenton County Detention Center, the Campbell County Detention Center. I think more and more in the criminal justice system and law enforcement, um, they, they are very clearly understanding that there is no way we're going to arrest our way out of this. And, um, and they recognize that. And one of the things, even with our syringe exchange program, to the extent that we can keep people from um, being infected uh, with hepatitis C and HIV and or carrying used syringes and needles on their body, on their person, when law enforcement is having to pat people down, you know, if we can help protect them from getting stuck with a contaminated um, needle, all the better for them too. But I do think that we're seeing this, this this transition and this change, um, people are recognizing that that this is a disease, the, and the um, data bears this out. That more and more people in Northern Kentucky do believe this is a disease, and that includes our law enforcement and criminal justice folks. And they want to see people uh, uh, be able to change their lives for the better. And to the extent that they're able to support that, uh, is a is a really good thing. And that's good that it's it's getting better, and that there's education being provided to law enforcement because you know you talk about. Um, fatigue and these people you know these first responders are going day after day and you know another subject of debate is why is somebody that overdoses not charged with a crime or held for a period of time but they're out on the street and they could potentially overdose again in the same day so so i can see the frustration 
but also having compassion and knowing that it's way more expensive to incarcerate somebody than it is to rehabilitate somebody. And so I, I think that yes. these are things to, to get across. And uh, But it's good to know that it's, it's getting better, at least around here. Uh, what's your thought on medically assisted treatment? Like Narcan and methadone, which is kind of an old one, but uh, Suboxone and things like that. Well, the the science is definitely on the side of MAT or uh, medically medication assisted therapy. Um, we do it for um, we do it for smoking cessation. You know, nicotine patches, nicotine gum, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we do it for a variety of conditions and, and diseases. Uh, is it right for everyone? Maybe not. I'm. There are stories of people who quit things cold turkey. Um, I think the key thing is when someone uh, has an addiction, has a substance use disorder, is to get a really good assessment so that um, a professional can figure out what might be the best approach to take. Uh, and, and you know, we do this in, in uh, mental illness, too. You know, there are so many different options in terms of treatment, uh, both in terms of medication, different kinds of counseling, and, and so forth. And, um, you know, we have to do our best to try to figure out what might be the best route for any given person. Um, and, you know, each person is unique. Their life story is unique. How they got to where they are, what they're dealing with is, is just unique to them. And I really think it does start with a good quality assessment to figure out what might be the best pathway, knowing that there may need to be adjustments along the way in terms of treatment and the supports for long-term recovery. And I honestly never thought about this until you just said it, that we do this for tobacco. We have non-alcoholic beverages for alcohol. But I think the stigma is that that's okay, where even though alcohol and tobacco wipe way more people out than drugs ever yes. do. Yes. You know, so that's so interesting. True. That's interesting that that stigma, because it's legal, it's means that it's okay. And and I think you, you hit a big nail on the heads. Stigma is a huge barrier to people getting into treatment and to, to seeking out treatment. And um, and the fact that we uh, have have addressed or looked at substance use differently um, than we do other chronic conditions. Um, slowly that's changing. You know, we were all trained and taught and socialized and educated to think one way about um, illicit drugs. And as the research has been done and as we start to understand what's happening in the brain, the brain is such a phenomenally complex organ uh, and trying to understand what's happening and why it's happening and what's affecting it. And then what do we do to, to affect it or treat it? Um, it, it just really is um, important that we address the stigma piece of that. 
uh, I think it, the ratio is like one in seven people with a substance use disorder will not seek treatment because of their fear of what people will think of them. Absolutely. And, and we just have to wipe that out. You know, barriers like transportation or I don't have health insurance, you know, those are there and those are things we can deal with. But we so often don't talk about the stigma and wiping out the stigma. And a lot of that starts with how do I talk about people who have a substance use disorder? And if people would just take a step back and re-examine their thoughts, their beliefs, their perceptions that that they've been socialized into believing, uh, and if they would look at what the science tells us now, uh, it, you know, and we have a great example, mental health, mental illness was the same way. You know, we used to view things like depression as something you just need to snap out Absolutely. of. And now we know so much more uh, about mental illness and we still don't know enough uh, that we still have, I think, a long ways to go. But, you know, just we, we've got to reexamine what we have believed for a long time and we have to really look at the language that we're using and how that affects people. Um, It's interesting to me on our syringe exchange program, the nurses, because we use nurses to operate, our public health nurses do the program, and um, just the comments they get from participants who say, nobody's ever treated me this nice, or you're treating me like a human being, and things that you know just bring tears to your eyes because you think, we're the only ones that are treating you as a human being. Well, we've got to change that. Right. Another thing on um, stigma is it's not just the individual and what they think the community is going to think. It's families. It's mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers who don't want to address it because they and get their loved one help because they're thinking, wow, we're going to be targeted and labeled. So I'm just going to pretend that this is not going on. And then people die because of it. I mean, it's crazy. Yes, yes. And then you don't get the support that you need as a family either. Uh, You know, we used to be that way about cancer. You would never dream of telling someone that your mother had breast cancer, like it was contagious or something. And, uh, you know, we have to change those whispers to real conversations between people. So I want to, I just want to get your opinion on this as far as, you know, another subject of treatment. But I know that you spent some time in Florida with education and working, but huge state for fraud, huge state, especially in South Florida, people going to treatment and it was just a total sham. People taking people's money, even as extreme as paying people to relapse the day they get out in order to rebuild their insurance, you know, just crazy stuff. Uh, Do you see any of that creeping into Kentucky or do you see any kind of fraudulent activity with treatment? You know, I I am really not real well versed in that. I would certainly hope that uh, that that is not going on in the Commonwealth. And um, honestly, Northern Kentucky, in many respects, is a small place. Um, The advocates, the family members, um, members of um, uh, various advocacy groups are always on the lookout. And um, 
and word spreads quickly if if they feel like um, an agency or something is not living up to what it's supposed to be doing. Um, and so I, I have not heard of any, and I would certainly hope that um, that someone would sound the alarm if, if they're seeing that happen. Um, so, yeah. So how would you say that we stack up, we being Northern Kentucky, uh, with the rest of the state and country when it comes to what we're doing, resources, and the impact based on the data that you've compiled? Here in Northern Kentucky, I I would say um, we're unique in uh, a couple of different respects. Uh, In Northern Kentucky, it's amazing to me how quickly the alarm was sounded here that we have a problem with heroin um, and how quickly we mobilized. Uh, I can remember our initial meetings where it would be DEA and law enforcement and me at a table. And then next thing you know, you've got St. Elizabeth and you've got treatment providers and you've got, you know, none of us speak each other's language at all. And it was like being at the United Nations trying to figure out how to come up with a common language and talk about who's responsible for what and what should the response look like. And, uh, and, and those early days were very challenging and trying to assess what are the gaps, what's needed, who should be doing what. In Northern Kentucky, I, I don't think – we were very quick to say loud and clear, we have a problem and we're going to do something about it. Um, other places – had the problem and and were not as vocal about it, um, which is kind of unfortunate. But when you look across the country, this is clearly uh, a national issue. And that's why the federal government got involved and started um, pushing funding out to to try to deal with the, the issue. Um, I think one of the things that people have realized, though, is this is not a one-and-done kind of thing. You know, we've got people who with mental illness. We're always going to have people with mental illness in our communities. We're always going to have people with substance use disorders. It's not just heroin. There are other drugs that, that get used, um, and there's polysubstance use, and and we have to uh, come to that realization that this isn't a a one-time thing where, boy, we're going to fix everyone that has an addiction to heroin, and then we can all go back to business as usual. We have to understand this is our new normal. It's always been there. It's just now we recognize it's here and we have a responsibility to help our family members, our neighbors, uh, the people we work with, the people we go to church with. We are all struggling in our own ways with various things. And um, it's it's part of our human condition. And to the extent that we can identify and intervene early. You know, I think about the kids in schools who are already showing signs and symptoms of mental illness um, and or heading down a pathway for substance use. Um, And um, how can we intervene early? And this notion of we've got to wait until somebody hits rock bottom before 
before we'll intervene is a crazy notion. We don't do that. We don't do that with cancer. We don't do that with diabetes. We don't do that with anything else. And we have to start looking at this just like we look at every other um, health condition that we deal with. Yeah. So another subject of criticism and debate is uh, that, and we know that this substance use has no, it, it doesn't care what race you are, what religion you are, what socioeconomic background you're from. But I think since uh, sub, since you know, opiates, since this has been happening over the past 10 years, or at least acutely, it's a mainly a Caucasian problem. And I think some people are saying, so so now it's important, but back in the 80s when the, the crack epidemic was huge, which was predominantly an African-American problem, why now is it getting so much so much care and, and treatment when before it, it wasn't? What, what are, what's your thought there? You, you know, um, I, I think it's always important to – I'm a big data person, so I think it's always important to look at – does the does the data support that maybe our laws or maybe how we enforce our laws uh, is there any bias? I, I don't know. I think the important thing is to look at um, with uh, opiates. Um, we were seeing people literally in the prime of their life dying suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, people who uh, should be, you know, working and raising a family and going to Reds games and enjoying life, dropping dead from overdoses. And and I think that was the urgency that really drove um, the the uh, swiftness of of action and uh, the, the the vast numbers. Yes, of the, the numbers being and how quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I do think we do need to look at um, you know what happens with marijuana, what happens with cocaine, and um, and how do we respond to those? We know that meth is making a comeback. Maybe not replacing heroin, but um, being being used um, as well as heroin, and um, and how do we deal with with that? And uh, I, I think we do need to look at the data and look at what what are we doing, and is there any consistency across the board with substance use in general? And making sure that we are, we have a similar approach, I, I think that is very important because we can't just create systems around heroin. I think we need to think more broadly: substance use and mental health, uh, mental illness, all together. On policy and, and government support, uh, since this is a public national public crisis, do you think that statewide? I guess we can we can stay statewide, but are we getting the resources we need, or, or is that group of people becoming more educated to where they're realizing that this is a huge problem? Because I know health insurance is a whole another podcast, <laughs> but we're not getting you know the love that we need when it comes to to support and resources when when it's costing people forty five thousand dollars to go to a twenty eight day program. It's just prohibitive for people to to get well. 
Yes, you know that that is for sure one of the challenges that if someone needs that that intensive um, kind of treatment, um, that acute treatment, um, that's going to be a barrier, a huge barrier. So we have a ways to go for sure when it comes to making treatment as accessible as possible. Um, and uh, I think it is uh, important to note that the federal government recognized that more resources need to be brought to bear. I think we need to make sure that these settlements with um, Big Pharma. Purdue uh, just got dinged. Yeah, so I think we need to make sure that that gets translated into more access to prevention, more access to treatment and harm reduction and the supports for long-term recovery and that those don't get somehow diverted into roads or whatever else the government is responsible for at, you know, the state, the county and city levels. We need to make sure that money goes for what it was intended to go for. Yeah. Hundreds um, of billions of dollars. I mean, they're dinging and, and finally bringing these people to justice but you still got to deal with the aftermath. Yes. And, you know, for us in public health, if everyone went into treatment uh, who uh, injected drugs, if they all went in today and were treated and got into um, long-term recovery, we still are going to be dealing with getting them treated, getting folks treated for hepatitis C, um, and getting them um, treated for the rest of their life for HIV. So there's a number of things that continue on, even if everyone's in long-term recovery. Uh, so the, the, I think the key thing is that more resources are needed, and we need to make sure we're making the best use of the resources that, that we're getting and that it is being put to addressing the actual issues that we're dealing with. On to general public health. Uh, is there a current concern or current problem? Because last year, 2018, was a huge hepatitis uh, C and, and we had yeah A and, we had a big and, outbreak yeah. of A yeah and that has has slowed down or is that right or yeah, is that not right? I think we're about ready to officially call it over. Really, uh, we have to go a certain number of days without a case before we can say it's officially over. But we've had it um, well under control for oh probably five months now. Um, yeah, so things will po pop up and crop up like that, and um, we were prepared. Um, we saw it coming. We saw it in Louisville, and we knew the populations that they were predominantly seeing it in. And uh, it was the same for us. It was mostly people who um, who were using drugs uh, or people who had been exposed to people who were infected. And uh, so we had to work very hard at not just trying to get that population vaccinated because the key to vaccination is you got to get a critical mass uh, protected by vaccination and then that protects everybody. Uh, and so our nurses were going into the four county detention centers every week, vaccinating everybody they could vaccinate uh, for months and months and months and until we reached that critical mass. You know, at the same time, we were um, working hard with all of our food 
food service establishments uh, to make sure that they were taking extra precautions uh, to try to prevent any kind of hepatitis A transmission uh, from any food service worker to the general public as, as well. Um, and for the most part, um, we did a really good job with that as well. Uh, there were some places where we ran into issues, literally less than a handful. Uh, at the same time, we were telling the general public, get vaccinated. It's a two-shot series, easy peasy. You can get it almost anywhere in the community. Um, and your insurance, for the most part, will cover it. So get the two shots. You don't have to think about it again in your lifetime. So as we wrap up here, uh, stigma. How can we improve stigma, which will ultimately improve public health? Yes, you're exactly right. I, I think the evidence is there that if we can uh, lessen or remove stigma, um, people are more likely to seek out healthier behaviors, and that includes getting into treatment uh, and other, other uh, services that they need. So um, I think the biggest thing is, is really twofold. The biggest thing is you have to be open enough to reexamine everything you have been taught, everything you've been socialized to believe. Um, and the second thing is look at the language that you're using uh, when you're either talking to someone or you're talking about people who are um, using drugs or people who have a mental illness. Um, you, you just have to put the person first when you're speaking about them. Instead of saying they're a drug user, say they're a person who's using drugs. Um, and um, to the extent you can, I know it's hard for humans to do this, to the extent you can, um, don't be judgmental. You have not walked in their shoes. You don't know what they are dealing with. You don't know what traumas they've gone through in life. You don't know what has brought them to where they are today. And, um, and you know, in the use of the drugs is serving some purpose for them. Uh, and it may be that it, it's the fact that the drug use has now changed their brain and altered their brain chemistry that they're trying to just function every day. And so um, to the extent possible, d don't judge, yeah. just help. Because, help. you know, I, I freely admit, and it's a fact that I chose to use drugs and alcohol and, and those things, but I, I did not choose to become addicted yes. and, and take over my, I mean, it took over my life every yes. waking moment and thought. So uh, that's what I think getting across is that at some point it hijacks the brain and it's no longer a decision-making process. It's a, it's a behavioral disorder of the brain, disease, whatever you want to call it, but w we lose control at some point. So you're exactly, exactly right. Nobody chooses that life. What is a blanket statement, public health as a whole, how can we participate, contribute? Be, what can we be on the lookout for? What is kind of your mantra to you know, improve and sustain healthy 
public health. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I would definitely say uh, something that every morning we all get up, we need to think about how can I be healthier today? Can I get a few more steps in? Uh, Can I make better choices about what I'm going to have at lunch today? Uh, Can I avoid smoking or being around secondhand smoke? Uh, How can I help other people today? If somebody is struggling Can I provide them with some kind of resource or support um, that might change how their day goes today? And, uh, you know, we are all in this together, especially in northern Kentucky. It's amazing to me uh, how, in many respects, we we look out for each other and can be so helpful to each other. Um, It's a a different climate and a different culture that we have. And, um, you know, physical and mental well-being is what it's all about and helping each other achieve that. Well, Dr. Sadler, you have a monumental job and you're doing a great one at that. Uh, so thank you for spending some time and, and being here to join us. And you know, a lot of education and awareness, that's what it's all about. And I think you've done that here today. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. It's really been my pleasure. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.